So what I got for you to start things off is a little test. So all you got to do is sit there to do this test. All you got to do is use your brain, sit there. You don't have to write anything this time. I'm going to read three short excerpts from Scripture, and then I'm going to ask you a question about what I read you. So here we go. The first one is over in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7. And again, just listen to it. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So that's number one. Remember that one. We're going to turn over to the book of Joshua for number two. Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read about eight verses here. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wideskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? Okay, remember that. That's number two. Here's number three. It's in 1 Chronicles, and this will be the last reading I do. 1 Chronicles 26, verses 1 through 4. 1 Chronicles 26, beginning in verse 1. The division of the gatekeepers from the Korahites, Meshelamiah, son of Kor, one of the sons of Asaph, Meshelamiah had sons, Zechariah the firstborn, Jediel the second, Zebediah the third, Jathniel the fourth, Elam the fifth, Jehoanan the sixth, and Elihoanay the seventh. Obed-Edom also had sons. Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehoshabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth. Okay, so I've read to you three bits of scripture. Which one of those don't you want to hear any more of? <laughs> one, two, or three. 
Okay, I'm seeing some threes going up. Okay, yeah. So whenever I do this, anybody who responds gives me a three, okay? And, and why is that? Why is that is what we're going to investigate today. Because the Bible is chock full of stories for a reason. It's full of stories for a reason because your brain loves storytelling. Your brain eats it up like for me, if it was a steak sub, that's how my brain is on stories, okay? Your brain loves stories because why? Who created your brain? God created your brain, right? So does God know how your brain works better than we, work, we know, okay? I was talking earlier before I got up here today about our brain a little bit and how we don't know the capacity that it has, but God knows all the intricacies of our brain. And what I'm going to establish today is the reason your Bible is a storybook is because it's easier for your brain to deal with storytelling than any other mode of teaching or learning. And we'll talk about why that is as we go through the day or the next 45, 50 minutes or so here. So that's where I'm going with today's message. Now, let's get back to the beginning of how storytelling started. Go back to Adam and Eve. Go back to the first humans on this earth. Did they write? No. The first thing we had as far as communication goes, according to science and the Bible, is just speaking. All right? So what happened is, before we learned how to write and communicate in that particular mode, we had to speak to each other. And as they spoke to each other, and they wanted their kids to do this, or their kids to do that, or their husband to do this, or their wife to do that, they had to communicate through verbal means. So they got good at learning how to do that. So that all happened way back when storytelling was one of these modes of communicating to make the message clearer to the people who were listening to it. But why stories? What does it do to the brain? Now you've all heard that there's a left side to your brain and a right side to your brain. So that is true, and as the brain science began, scientists were saying that the left only does this and the right only does that. That is not necessarily the case, but there are things that the left side is more attuned to and there are things that the right side is more attuned to. The left side of your brain is more attuned to words, numbers, linear thinking, and logic. The right side of your brain is more attuned to imagination, visualization, color, and creativity. So here's what happens when you hear a story instead of hearing a lecture. When you hear a lecture, you're only hearing words. You're not hearing much color if you think back to some of your boring high school or college courses. All right? What's happening when you're just hearing words about something similar to that third excerpt of Scripture I gave you, only one part of the brain is really being impacted when you're only hearing words. The name of this, the name of that, the name of this, the name of that. But what happens with the story 
is the words are there, which is impacting one part of the brain, but also the visualization of seeing a serpent, of seeing a tree. There's fruit on the tree, and your brain knows what fruit is. And you begin to see this in your mind's eye, in your brain. You start to go there, in a sense, with what you're hearing. That's why we eat up stories, because it engages both sides of the brain at the same time. That is the key. That is why the brain eats up storytelling. Now, a lot of research has been conducted in this particular subject. I'm going to make you aware of a little bit of it, and then we're going to get into some of the aspects of what simulation is and why it's so powerful, and the fact that your brain is a simulation tool if you did not know that. Let me try another little uh, example on you. Okay, so we got a new president in Washington. I live near Washington, D.C. So some people might write about Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump is a confident man. Okay, everybody would agree with that, okay? He's, He's pretty confident in himself. Now, what if I wrote it this way? Mr. Trump is a roaring lion to say that he was confident. Think of those two terms, roaring lion versus the word confident. What's happening in your head right now when I say the word confident? What happens in your brain right now when I say roaring lion? What's going on, gang? You get a picture with the lion, don't you? And here's what your brain does when a picture appears in your brain. It begins to make connections to all kinds of other things that are picture-related in the brain. Wild Kingdom, the zoo, a safari, Africa, whatever it may be that relates to that lion. When I just give you confident, you think of Mr. Trump, and then you think of confident. Who else do I know who's confident? It doesn't make a splash on the brain. The word confident does not make the splash on the brain that Roaring Lion does. What you want to do when you speak to people, when you try to deliver a message, is you want the brain to be splashing. You want rocks to be going in there and water to be moving in the brain metaphorically. Now, a little bit of the research. There's a a researcher named P.R.J. Simons, and he did this research in 1984. Now, since 84, there's been a lot more research conducted in this particular area, but let me tell you about one of the early studies. He believed that storytelling was a very powerful vehicle for learning. So what he did to a number of high school electricity classes is rather than just lecture the students on electricity, he had some of his teachers do that, but then he had other teachers bring in storytelling to each session of the class in some way on electricity. And what he found when he tested the classes that got the stories versus the classes that did not get the stories, you guessed it. There was a dramatic difference in the test scores on a whole as to the fact that the storytelling classes were doing better on their test scores than the non-storytelling classes. 
Again, a lot of research studies have been conducted in this particular area over the years that point out the same thing. Now, something else about storytelling that works for the brain is the fact that a lot of times repetition and certain words and phrases that rhyme are used in storytelling. So I'm going to look at some younger folks in the crowd today, and I'm going to start talking about Little Red Riding Hood for a minute. So I met this young lady a little bit earlier today, and what is her name again? Your daughter? That's your daughter right there. No, it's not your daughter. I'm sorry. That's who's? That's your daughter. Okay, what's your name? I'm sorry. She looks like, it's when you see somebody for the first time. See, my brain, I need a story. Okay, so Alyssa... You've heard the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right? So remember when Little Red Riding Hood comes on the uh, bed that the wolf is now in, the grandmother's not there, and, and what uh, Little Red Riding Hood is, says to the wolf, and thinking it's her grandmother, what big eyes you have, Grandma. And she says, the wolf says, the better to see you, my dear. And then she says, what big hands you have, Grandma. She says, yeah, the better to, you know, and then she's going to grab Little Red Riding Hood. And she says different things to her grandmother, not knowing it's the wolf. But she goes over and over these different things. Just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. What happens in that one? Goldilocks comes on the house and sees the three uh, bowls of porridge. One is small, one is medium, and one is large. Goldilocks goes upstairs and three sees the beds. One is small, one is medium, and one is large. Why do we still remember those stories? No, I'm not still reading them, gang, okay? I'm not still reading, although I have an eight-year-old daughter. But anyway, she's on to like uh, many other things. But anyway, the reason we remember that is the repetition that is used within those stories. This is a technique that storytellers use. Why? Because they realized it works for the brain to repeat things. Let's talk about Dr. Seuss. We know about Dr. Seuss, right? We got the young, young folks coming in right now. So who's heard of Dr. Seuss before? Okay, you guys remember the story of green eggs and ham. Okay, so Sam I am. I will not eat green eggs and ham. I will not eat it in a train. I will not eat it on a plane. I will not eat it with a fork. I will not eat green eggs and ham. It goes through that, the whole story. This, the repetition over and over, the same thing. He keeps repeating. And at the end, he says something a little bit different. All of a sudden, he tries the green eggs and ham. Thing one and thing two. In Dr. Seuss, remember thing one and thing two? That's simple, right? Thing one, thing two. Let's not make this a big deal, okay? Dr. Seuss, uh, Charles Schultz, all these guys who've written those children's stories know the pattern that you use, repetition, rhyming. And that particular pattern is eaten up by the brain. Memory researchers will tell you that repetition helps the brain. Doing things over in the same ways, whatever you practice, helps your brain. Now, let's stop for a moment. Because at the beginning, I got into the Bible. I haven't touched the Bible yet, have I? So think about this as far as repetition and memory goes. Where do you see repetition in stories in the Bible? 
Do you see it? Okay, there's the holy days. The Sabbath is a repetitive item. But look at this. You don't need to go there, but we could go to Exodus 8, and we could read about, what do you think is in Exodus 8? The plagues, very good. You get the star for the day, whoever that was. What happens with the plagues? There's the first plague, the second plague, the third plague, the fourth plague. Why did God have to give them ten? Could He have given them one? They didn't quite get it at one, because the magicians could do some of that stuff, right? But the more He did it, the more often it occurred, until finally... Pharaoh let them go. But you also see this repetition in Revelation, don't you? Where it talks about what's going to happen at the end. There's some similarities to what happened in Exodus 8 with those plagues. Repetition in the Bible. History repeating itself in the Bible. You've all heard about the duality of prophecy in the Bible. What about Luke 19 and verse 11? If you want to go to one book in the Bible that's full of parables, it's the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19 and verse 11. Is there some repetition in Jesus' storytelling? Notice this. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to this, He went on to tell them a parable because He was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the Kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said... A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. And then the second one comes and says this. And then the third one comes and says that. Repetition. Just like the three little pigs. Blow the house down with the straw. Blow the house down with the sticks. Can't blow the house down with the bricks. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Storytellers through the ages have discovered this truth about what works for the brain But God knew it way back here, folks. Why do you think Jesus is repeating things in His parables? Why do you think He's repeating things within prophecy, within history? Because He knows that that learns the lesson for the brain. There are some people, few people, who get this truth now, right? Very few, okay? What about everybody else? He wants everybody else, right? And He's going to get them He's going to get them through the storytelling manner, and I'll get to that a little bit later, through them seeing all of the bad things that come down, it's going to impress certain people at that time. When they see, when they resurrect from the dead, the story and know the story, it's going to impact them in a totally different way because they are part of that story when we get to that point in history. Now... What interested me in this subject was the job, I'm I'm an instructor with uh, the government, 
And the job I had prior to this, I was on a rotation to another government agency where I was teaching leadership there. And one of the things we found when we were teaching people all this leadership stuff is that storytelling has become a major vehicle through which to teach leadership principles. So once I started reading on that, it was just connecting to me to things I know about in the Bible. So that led me to to coming up with this uh, sermon today. So when I looked at stories and did some research on them, you find there are certain themes in which stories can be told. For example, a creation theme. And it could be the beginning of a company if you're in the business world. An ending theme. You think about the Bible talking about the end of time, but you could also think about a company imploding and being resurrected into some other company. You think about death, salvation, and resurrection in the Bible, and when you think about comic book heroes, when you think about fantasy figures, there's all kinds of death, salvation, and resurrection themes within those particular stories. You also, when you think about your childhood stories, you think about the fact that they had an emotional connection for you. And I'm going to address the emotional aspect a little bit later, but another major part about stories is the hero. The hero in the story. Hollywood has gone crazy with superhero-themed movies today, right? They're all... Justice League, Spider-Man, Iron Man, The Hulk... Batman, Superman, Batman and Superman. I mean, it's like, why are there so many superhero movies out there? Because people are looking for that hero. They want something to believe in, and it has all those elements that we've just been talking about that hit you emotionally in some way. Now, a little bit more research about how your brain works and how that makes storytelling so much more impactful. Now listen carefully to this. I'm going to give you some research information that will not have any connection to storytelling yet. I'm going to give it to you later, but hear me out on this. Scientists have studied the brain and they found that the brain has four levels of activity. The highest level of activity for the brain, they call the beta level. And this is when you are totally conscious and wide awake. So you've just had an energy drink because you're driving eight hours to go speak somewhere. And you needed that energy drink. And you want to maintain focus on the highway, which has happened to me a couple times. That is conscious and wide awake. That is the beta level. Now let me ask you a question. At the beta level... Is that the best level to learn something? Just think about that. We'll get back to the answer in a minute. The second level, a little bit down from the beta level, is called the alpha level. This is when you are in a state of relaxed awareness. Now at beta, your brain is cycling at 14 to 21 cycles per second. At alpha, your brain is cycling at 7 to 14 cycles per second. So there is a little overlap between these ranges. The third level is called the theta level, and this is when you're on the edge of sleep. Okay, so you're about to fall asleep, you know, but you're not out yet. 
You guys, it's all happened to you watching TV, laying on a couch, and then you wake up and you miss something. You're in the theta level. That's four to seven cycles per second in the brain. The final level, the lowest level of brain activity, is the delta level. This is when you're in deep sleep. You are out, or so you think. You're dreaming, right? You are still taking in data, believe it or not. Your brain is functioning at 0.5 to 4 cycles per second, even when you are in an unconscious-like sleep. Now, which of these levels do you think researchers say is the best level to learn something? Now, obviously, it's not going to be when you're asleep, okay? So we'll take that one out. It's not going to be when you're almost asleep either. It's either beta, conscious and wide awake, or relaxed awareness. What do you think it is? It is. It's number two. It's relaxed awareness. It's not when you're conscious and wide awake. Why? Did you ever take a test and you were worried about the results of that test? And you're like really hyped up about taking it? Yeah. What happens is you're taking in too much at that time. You got to back off a little bit. Don't be as nervous. Study more. Okay? That way you'll be more relaxed when you're going to take your test. But when you're hyped up and consciously wide awake, you're taking in too much stimuli. When you are in the relaxed awareness state, that is the best state to be in to learn something. Now... I'm going to get to how that relates to storytelling in a minute. I need to tell you one other bit of information. There's a guy named Georgie Lazanoff. I like that name, Georgie Lazanoff. It kind of just rolls in when you throw it out there. Georgie Lazanoff was studying how music could be used to help people learn better. Okay, you know how some people like have the TV on when they're doing studying, some people have music on when they're studying. Okay, in some cases, it can work, folks. It can work. Now, I'm not saying have Metallica playing in the background when you're trying to study for a test, okay, but certain types of music can assist the brain in getting into the relaxed awareness state, which is conducive to learning. And Lazanoff found that this was the case. He did research and proved the point. But then you know what they did? Once they found this out, they started to say, well, what else puts us into the relaxed awareness state, right? Because that way we can teach people better. So they found meditation puts you into relaxed awareness, Prayer can put you into relaxed awareness. Those are good for us, right? Okay? Also, what puts you into relaxed awareness is relaxation techniques, okay? Deep breathing, exercise, okay? These things can put you into that state where it's easier to learn something. Now, here's the deal. Stories put you into the same state mentally a relaxed awareness state. Think about it. What are you guys doing when I tell you a story? Are you right? Do you have to write? Do you have to think about what you're going to do tomorrow? No. All you do is sit back and take it in. Now, has everybody heard the term bedtime story? Everybody's heard that term, right? So let me tell you a story about my daughter relating to the phrase bedtime story. 
So again, my daughter's the only kid I got. So I've always heard bedtime story, but I did not get it until I got a daughter, okay? So here's how it works. My daughter's eight now, but when she was about three, four years old, she's a voracious reader. My wife is on her about school, so she was reading early. But, you know, it's bedtime. She's a little tired. She wants me to read to her. So I'm a little tired, too, this one night, and I'm reading her a book. And I got to admit it, I was skipping some sentences because she wanted me to get through the chapter. So I skipped a few sentences along the way. But when I skipped it a couple times, she looked at me and said, you're not reading all that page. And I was like, what? What's going on here? And so here's what was going on. She's got these books on CD, and what she would do is she'd put them into her CD player at night and go to sleep listening to the story. Remember I told you, even when you're asleep, you are taking in data. Your brain is still taking it in. She'd listen to that thing over and over and over and read it over and over and over. And I said, can you do more of that? And she began to recite four pages of this book verbatim, word, word after word. I was like, I can do something with this. <laughs> but no, I, that crossed my mind there for a minute. But, but what happens is the reason she wanted to hear the stories at night is because it relaxed her so she would fall asleep. Where do you think the phrase bedtime story comes from? Way back in history, some parent figured out when I tell my kid a story at night, they fall asleep. Bedtime story, the relaxed awareness state. Now, once one researcher hears something, the next researcher jumps on that information and does something else with it. So some guy named Carter Liggett said, well, let me test the hormones and what's happening inside the body when you're hearing a story. And what he found was that the stress hormone cortisol drops. It drops when I tell you a story. Because why? The brain is fully engaged. The brain wants that. And the brain is the biggest thing in you as far as energy use, okay? So if you've got the most important energy user in your body draining itself, focusing on the story... Other things in your body need to compensate for that, so stress is reduced by that. Cortisol goes down in your body when you're listening to a story, when you're in the relaxed awareness state. Another thing they found was, this is a big word, immunoglobulin A, which is a blood protein. Help me with that, Amy, later. I don't know. It's a blood protein that fights disease. Levels of that rise in your body when you are listening to a story, when you are exercising, when you're doing relaxation techniques. Now, that's all positive for learning, of course. So storytelling is non-threatening activity. Your body wants that, and it makes it easier for you to remember stuff. And Dave, we won't need to write everything down if people are telling us a story about it. We all know that in, in, intuitively, don't we? That when you hear a story about something, it clicks more than when you're just hearing disparate facts about the same thing. Now, 
I know you know Jesus used parables, but let's look at some of the technique that he used when he did a parable. And we're going to go to the book of Luke, and I'm just going to pick a few of these to show you something within his technique that you could possibly use when you tell stories. Now, the first one is over in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Let's take a look at Luke 8, and I'm going to pick it up there in verse 9. Luke 8 and verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And you can go through there and read the rest about this. But the reason I bring this up is some people asked me in Canada after I did this sermon, well, what about the fact that some people didn't get Jesus' stories? So I want to answer that question right now. That's a different story, okay? What I mean by that is this storytelling technique was not only used by Jesus, it was used by the rabbis at that time in history, just like a lot of religious teachers will use story. So there's no doubt that the storytelling technique is the way to go when we're imparting knowledge or one of the ways to impart knowledge. But obviously, there's a higher level when Jesus provides the explanation to these particular parables to those within his group who are trying to understand it. So that goes without saying. I just wanted to deal with that initially. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, though, gets into his technique here. And let's look at a couple examples of this. Luke 10, 25. Now watch this because Jesus does this a number of times with his stories. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So this is one technique within training or teaching. Use the question technique, okay? You ask the person a question, it engages them, they try to reply to it, the, the wheels start churning in the brain. But notice now, what does Jesus do when this guy hasn't totally gotten it, okay? Watch this, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now you guys know the story. The priest comes along, walks away. The Levite comes along, walks away. Who's the guy who helps the guy? A Samaritan, which is a guy who you would expect not to help the guy. So there's a complete twist here in the end of this story 
because a Jew at that time would not think that the Samaritan's going to help him. He's going to think that my priest or my Levite is going to help me. So there's that twist to the story. But the point I want to make here is not only is there that twist in the story, which is another technique in storytelling, but Jesus uses that repetition again. Levite, priest, Samaritan. One, two, three. Jesus also uses this technique here. Once he engages them in conversation and they don't completely get it, he goes to the story as his final way of bringing home the point. And so that's something for us to think about. When you get involved in conversations and people are not necessarily getting the truth of God, it might be a good time to use a personal story. To use the story of what happens at the end. The story of the second resurrection. Or whatever it may be to bring home that point in a more succinct way for your audience. Now here's another example. We're going to turn over to Luke 13 and verse 18. This is a little bit different, but it's still relating to this whole concept of storytelling. Luke 13 and 18, and here's what we read there. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Okay, so Jesus is asking the question now. He's not going to get into a story here, but what does he do? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. What's he doing? He's hitting both sides of the brain. The words and then the picture, the analogy, the metaphor, whatever it is, it's a small story in a sense because it hits the brain and makes that splash that I was talking about earlier. Luke 14 and 15. Luke 14 and 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't reply, Yeah, right on, brother, and leave it there. Okay? What does he do? He tells them a story about the banquet, which has repetition in it once again. Jesus knows how our brains work. He knows what will impact us. Let's go to Luke 15 and verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Some will say, no, not necessarily. <laughs> Some people are going to say, if I got my 99, I'm not going after that one. I may lose my 99. But Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm going to give you that twist here to the story, which once again impacts the brain. Really good book. I think I've mentioned it here before. Make It Stick talks about six ways of making your communication or your message stick. One of those ways is to make your message unique. That's what Jesus is employing here. He's twisting that story, just like he twisted it with the Samaritan versus the priest and the Levites. Another way to do it. How can we make our story stick? 
Christmas isn't the time Jesus was born. What do you, first time I heard that, I was like, what? What are you talking about? That's what my mama told me. What are you telling me? You know, I was upset, you know. My mother said, Christmas is Jesus' birthday. And then I was in third or fourth grade, I think. By golly, it is Jesus' birthday. My mother told me, you know. But, but years later, when I read the history, the Encyclopedia Britannica and this source and that source, I was like, my mama lied to me. <laughs> now, I didn't say that in my head, but something happened to me subconsciously, I think, psychologically. But anyway, anyway, you don't go to heaven when you die. That's the way I've heard I go to heaven when I die. You twist. No, here's what happens. That twist, they might not get it there, but you grab them for a moment. And if they hear something later, I had a cousin who I told all about a lot of these things when I first got into it. He wasn't listening to any of it. But as the years went by and I continued to have a relationship with him, I gave up on talking to him about religion. One day he came to me 10 years after I got into this stuff. He goes, Mike, you're right about Christmas. I was reading that in college, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, okay, okay. (laughs) So don't give up. There's always hope. There's always hope. Now, I've said a lot about stories so far. I'm going to start bringing this to a conclusion by addressing that your brain is a simulation machine. I'm going to repeat that because it's very, very big. Your brain is a simulation machine, and that's another reason why storytelling is so profound in learning. Now, let me explain that. I think I've talked to you guys before about mirror neurons. Have you guys heard me talk about that before? Some of you have not. Some of you are looking at me quizzically. So let me give you a quick refresher on that. Again, going back to the research, some guys were studying monkeys. And they were looking at the monkey brain years ago. And they had a bowl of fruit on a table And they were done with the research. They had all these electrodes taped to the monkey's head, finding out what part of the monkey brain is being impacted when they do different things with the monkey. And before they turned off the last monkey's get-up, one of the researchers went over to the bowl of fruit where there was a banana, and he picked up the banana, and, and one of the researchers noticed the monkey was lighting up. So... They said, oh, you know what's probably, they were like playing with each other. I bet you I know what part of the monkey brain is lighting up. The part that thinks that it's picking up a banana. Because the part of your brain that thinks about doing something is different from the part of your brain that actually does something. So they said, oh, yeah, I bet you that's uh, the part of the brain that's thinking about picking up a banana because it's seeing somebody else pick up a banana. But they looked at it and they realized The part of the brain that was registering was not the part of the monkey brain that thinks about picking up a banana, but the part of the brain that picks up the banana. So what's going on there? Mirror neurons in your brain simulate what you see as you go through the day. When you hear a story, your brain is there putting you in the story in a sense. In a sense. Why are movies so impactful? Why do you cry at movies? Why do you get excited when Rocky is fighting Apollo Creed and it's the 15th round and my cousin was jumping out of his seat rooting for Rocky? 
What's going on? That's fake. That's not real. That's a story you're watching. Why do we get so emotionally wrapped up in Spider-Man? I want to swing from the uh, buildings with a web thing in my arm, you know? I want to be the Hulk and jump a thousand feet in the air when I do this, right? Isn't that true? You are impacted by those stories because your brain makes you Spider-Man. Your brain makes you the Incredible Hulk. Your brain gives you that perfect man or that perfect woman in that movie. Your brain does all that. Why? Why did God make your brain like that? Why are there billions of dollars spent on the movie industry? Billions of dollars spent on the recording industry. What are songs? Songs, especially country western songs, are stories about life. And people have had that experience, and they've had this experience, and they want that experience, and the brain puts them there. And that music, that guitar, the drums help in that process. Why do all those movies in Hollywood have soundtracks? They know how the brain works and what impacts it, and so does God. So we've got mirror neurons in our brain just like monkeys do, folks. And how many of you play video games? What are the commercials that are out there? Like uh, Assassin and Warcraft? I don't know. what. There are all kinds of video games out there, but they're getting more lifelike, aren't they? It's like those figures, when I see the commercial on TV, I'm like, is that a real person? And now Arnold Schwarzenegger's on there and pushing buttons and blowing things up. Why? It puts you there. It puts you there. If you want that excitement, you got it. Because it's feeding this. It's feeding how this thing works. Your brain is a simulation machine. But why? When we get to the back of the Bible, why? I'm going to get to that as I wind this thing down. So we've got these mirror neurons that simulate the stories that we hear, the stories that we see, the stories that we experience ourselves. Simulation is the next best thing to actually experiencing it yourself and being there. Now, how does that, how does that relate to Scripture? Well, let me, let, me, let me throw a scripture at you here to, to, to conclude things, but I just want you to think one more thing, one more time about this. The Bible is full of stories, is it not? Story after story after story, over and over, the story of David, the story of Moses, the story of Abraham. Abraham had to get up and move to another location because God told him to. Moses had to lead his people out of Egypt, and he didn't want to do it. David committed adultery. David had a man murdered. David committed sins and then repented. Job ran from God, and what happened? God brought him back, and he had an experience with the fish that he would not want to have again. So you read these stories... You get these experiences, and if you read them over and over again, what does it do to that simulation machine, folks? It hardens that simulation machine. If I read over and over about these people in the Bible who were rejecting God, and then God destroyed them, and I read about Israel, and I read about Judah, then I read about the end times, everybody does it again, and they're destroyed again. 
what do I want to do? I want to get with the program, right? I want to get with God's program, whatever it is. If I'm reading these over and over, my brain is simulating this. If I read about it and I believe it, that I can live forever, and I have indications within all these stories, I see people rising from the dead in the story, I see Jesus rising from the dead in the story, I hear about the second resurrection, I hear about the first resurrection, and I simulate that in my brain, I want to be resurrected, and I believe that, and it locks in because I stick to the stories and continue to look at them, what happens to me in my brain? I'm locked in. I'm there. Just like the kid with the the joystick, you know, who can't get away from it. He's locked in because the brain is is seeking that. You've heard the stories about people playing for hours and they can't get them away from it. They got locked in, folks. The simulation took them over. You got to let the simulation of these stories take you over. It's got to become you. It's got to become your brain. So once I looked at all this research and I was thinking about scriptures in the Bible, I found one that hit me right between the eyes. And I'm going to leave that one with you to conclude this. I want you to think about this scripture in a different way than maybe you've thought about it before with all this information I've just given you about stories. Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written... Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now just listen to that last sentence. Man does not live on bread alone. He lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. Where is every word that we know comes from the mouth of God? It's right here. Some people might tell you God's talking to them, but we don't know if He was. But we know that this, at least, is every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you have to live on this. What am I saying? When you focus on this book, When you read this book over and over, and you get these stories over and over, and you read about what happened to this guy when he did that, what happened to that girl when she did this, what happened to that country when they did this, what God wants you to do, what God is going to do in the future, it locks in, and you live by it. It makes itself part of you. You become it, just like you get emotional when you watch that movie or hear that song. You now get emotional. You now get worked up when you screw up, when you make a mistake, when you go a different way than the way God wants you to go. So I will leave you with, take every word from the mouth of God and live that story.